0: Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton.
1: We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. This is episode 104, episode 104. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, we got a, a interesting show coming up today. Uh Lots of, lots of cool stuff to talk about. We've got to have a lawyer coming on, uh, so excited to get into it.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Good show. Looking forward to it. As you mentioned, Tom Zabel's coming on. Uh, but first, let's thank our sponsor, which is Baffin Bay Rod and Gun. We'll be going fishing, Josh, May 24th and 25th. If you haven't signed up, com slash fishing. We'll link to that in the show notes. I'm sure it'll be on my LinkedIn. Uh, my LinkedIn page will be in the show notes as well. But text on Podcast.com slash fishing. It's Josh's last trip. I got one more in June, but Josh won't be able to go in June. So if you want to, I don't know why you would, but if you want to go see Josh in action, uh, trying to catch a fish, then May 24th or 25th be your last day. Um, Josh, also, last Friday night, me and you were at the Society of Petroleum Engineers in Dallas Casino Night. Got to meet a listener, so shout-out to Jim. Um, nice meeting you, Jim, and uh, had a great time at the casino night. Josh actually... You know, did pretty good at blackjack. I didn't know you could count and play and all that stuff. That was pretty impressive.
1: I can walk and chew gum at the same time, it turns <laughs> out.
0: Let's yeah. not get too far ahead of ourselves. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I had a great time there uh, at the Society of Petroleum Engineers uh, Casino Night in Dallas. And real quick, Josh, our shrimp bowl. We will record a supplemental episode this week announcing the shrimp bowl. It will be um, June 4th or 5th out there in Midland. We're finalizing the details hopefully today, but as soon as we have that, we'll, we'll hop on here. We'll, we'll record a short little episode. Uh, just me and Josh is kind of going over that this week uh, with all the details. Obviously, connect with us on LinkedIn. We'll be sharing on LinkedIn. But mid, there's a the Midstream Conference in Midland will be going on the 4th and 5th. And so we'll be out there one of those nights with our event. It's limited space, limited registration. We'd love to see you guys out there. It's going to be a minimal fee uh, just to get in the door, but uh, shrimp and um, all kinds of good stuff. So anyways, Josh, uh, looking forward to that as well. This is uh, the first time we mentioned
1: the shrimp bowl. I think we've kind of kept it under wraps here for the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about it, and uh, I believe Nate was supposed to have everything locked down by a day. Well, so. yeah. Supposed to. We, yeah, supposed to, Nate. But, you know, yeah, we know not it goes It's fault. It's Nate's fault. Well, um, Ryan, there was an article that came out uh, a couple of days ago talking about possibly putting pipeline protesters in prison. Uh, it's a new bill that is under consideration right now. Texas legislature is looking at uh, being able to charge these environmentalists if they come in and impede oil and gas sites that are under construction. So, um, you know, I see something like this, and I wonder what kind of precedent it could it could set with, with protesters and how the law could be used. So even though I'm sympathetic with, um, with the law, there's also some concerns about how... Um, protesters could be put in prison as well, that kind of, that's a a little, I mean, what do you think about it, Ryan?
0: Yeah, I'm with you, Josh, I'm kind of torn, so first off, um, I I think we we need to say that there is safety concerns and there's um, landowner rights issues that we want to make sure that we're, we're thinking about those issues first, because... If they're hopping the fence and they're getting inside a facility, well, that's just trespassing, right? So mm-hmm. if they're breaking into your facility, that's trespassing. The easement thing's a little bit different because not all easements are marked very clearly. You're not sure when they where they start, where they stop. Um, and so I'm a little bit leery of the easement just because you could walk out to West Texas and you could be on the easement or off the easement and, and not really be able to tell where it stops and starts if everything's mowed equally. Um, if you're in Louisiana, where it's uh, kind of cleared through timber, that's a little bit different. But out where it's you know, just grassland, it would be hard to determine whether you're on the easement or not. Um, and, and so the thing is, Josh, it's a 20-year 20, 20 year penalty here, um, potentially. Now, I don't think they're going to put anybody in 20 years. But the other thing I think we have to watch out for is, you know, using this law, and I think this is where you're getting towards, using this law to say that someone's protesting even though they might not be protesting. So, um, like with a lot of things, the law usually gets extended, not not um, you know that the powers expand, not get reduced. And so, the next thing you know, you're out there and you get in an argument with someone and you're being brought up under protesting charges, even though that's not really what you were doing. So, I would be curious how the language of this is written. Maybe we got a lawyer other than Tom, but you know, we have a lawyer that's coming on that could kind of talk about this because... I think you're right. There is some precedent setting here that you'd have to be careful for. Um, and my my questions generally would be is why aren't the trespassing laws enough as they are? So if you're on the facility, that's trespassing. If you're on the easement, shouldn't that be trespassing? Um, mm. Why aren't those laws enough as they are? That would be my that would be my, my first concern. And then once we've addressed that, then I'd want to bring up the issue like, hey how can you actually tell whether they're on the easement or not? Now, in some spots, it's, it's really easy, but there's plenty of spots where you're not necessarily sure if the, if you're on the easement or not. Um, and so you could, theoretically, just to work this out, you could have a situation where Josh has the approval of the landowner to protest on his property, um, and, but he doesn't realize that he's stepping on the easement. Um, and so, again, we're not pro-protesters. We've made that pretty clear. Um, but we're also, we are also want to be careful that the precedent, as you mentioned, Josh, is set here.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned the trespass. I mean, one of the pictures, I think it's the last picture on this article. There are uh, two guys standing on actually on the pipeline. They're actually standing on the pipe, uh, holding you know a sign and stuff. So that that's trespassing. I mean, you you can't right. You, you can't go do that. I mean, and not only that, but you're it's a liability because if something were to happen, these two guys get killed. They're standing on the pipeline. You know, it, it's a you know insurance issue as well.
0: Right, and so you, and that's a great point you bring up. Is what we don't want is someone to be trespassing, get injured, and then the um, the owner of the easement or the the construction company to be sued and have to pay you know these damages for for injury to person. Um, you don't want that either. But that's what's confusing to me. It's like, shouldn't the law already cover this? That if you're mm-hmm. trespassing on someone's property, and it's clearly their property, um, that should be pretty, pretty, and like like you mentioned, there's a picture of a guy standing on top of a pipe that's being built. That's pretty clear trespassing. There's not really any doubt there. <laughs> so mm, yeah. that, should, that that seems should be able to go ahead, uh, arrest those folks, and punish them under, under, under the law.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely try to keep, a, keep an eye on the bill as it's going through some of uh, the legislation. Uh, but uh, from the way this article is written, they they're, they're they say it's a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And they don't think that it'll it'll go through. So yeah, well, and,
0: and and for lawyers and listeners, let Josh and I know. You can Get us yeah. up on the website, or you know, if you have a lawyer that wants to come on and talk about this, the pros and cons, or whatever, um, or just send us the message through the website. We'd love to get the listeners' feedback on what they think about a law like this.
1: Well, Occidental, Chevron, and Adarco. This uh, they need to make like a TV series out of this. It's uh, it's going back and forth, uh, um, Oxy. So an article came out with CNBC that I thought was fascinating. It was something that you have been talking about, Ron, where they are going to be looking to sell off um, some of the, the African assets that they have, um, assets down in Mozambique, um, Gulf of Mexico. Uh, there's a few places out, out there that they're, they're trying to get rid of. They want to keep the stuff in the Gulf and the Permian, obviously. Um, so it that, that was interesting to, to see them doing that because you were saying that Chevron, they were more aligned with some of that over in the in Africa, uh, the African assets that were there. So it was cool watching them, you know, some of those details start to come to light as they work through it.
0: Right. Yeah, we were talking about this, I think, offline or maybe on the show the other day. Josh, is that I was curious, like you're saying, to see what happens here because um anadarko has assets in, as you mentioned algeria ghana mozambique and south africa uh, now total recently announced that they're gonna be drilling offshore of south africa um and I was, i'm familiar somewhat with my dealings in south africa with Mozambique, um uh, with anadarko's mozambique assets i'm not really familiar uh, familiar with their other assets in africa i know they had some but i w- i thought that would align more with chevron um so it's interesting, though. Since this started off, Oxy has went out and gotten some backing from Warren Buffett, and now they're basically saying, hey, we're going to do a deal with Total to help raise cash. And they changed their offer from 50-50 uh, stock to cash to, was it? Let's see, I got it right here. 76 78, 78% cash, 22% yeah. stock. Yeah. That's a lot of cash, homie. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's a, a lot that's, of cash, man. That's a lot of mm. cash, and so, but, but but it's interesting to see how it works itself out, and it makes sense. I I'm not familiar uh, with um, Oxy's, you know, what kind of international presence they really have. I always found that was interesting. Um, but I I was thinking that the African assets might have something to do with what happens here, um, and, and it does. It does. It looks like it's going to look like it's going to help if Oxy gets everything works out. It's going to help them. By you know, getting some money from Total, buying that, not having to deal with those assets and give them to Total, who is invested, as I mentioned, in uh, South Africa at least. I'm not sure what their what their stance is with this other stuff. So it's interesting to watch this thing uh, shake out. And the the t- one takeaway though, Josh, I thought about, is that the African assets are coming into play here, but it really shows that you know, Oxy is really primarily interested in the 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 Permian stuff, the, mm-hmm. the U.S. based stuff. And um, I was thinking maybe Chevron was interested in some of the international stuff um, as well. But um, it looks like those assets are good because they're consultant total and the Permian stuff's good here. So anyways, I'm curious how it shakes out, but it's, uh, it's a story that, um, you know, never seems to end.
1: I know. I know. I mean, and you have just different stuff coming out like the, uh, the they, a certain percentage of their offer being uh, switched to cash instead of a 50-50. I mean, that just came out, I think, yesterday. Uh, mm-hmm. Information on that came out. And if you look at it, you got Warren Buffett's ten billion. You got the eight point eight billion from Total or Total. Um, that's eighteen point eight billion in cash right there. Uh, so that makes their life a lot easier uh, to come up with fifty-seven.
0: Cash. That was the number, something like that. originally? Yeah, I
1: think. See what I what I what I saw was uh, thirty. 36. Well, 57 was,
0: didn't Chevron offer 50, and they offered 57, right? Well,
1: that was that was once they, they balanced everything out, all the assets. Uh, it, it was just okay. what they're offered in cash. They were offering, uh, Chevron, I think, offered 30, and they offered 36. Okay. Um, and once everything worked out, Chevron's came out to 50, and then Oxys came out to 57 once. I, and I, I don't understand all the things, but I think with the 18.8, I think, that leaves them you know thirty six billion minus eighteen point eight is what they'd have to come up with cash uh or seventy eight percent of that rather right they we're get we're getting we're getting too deep in the numbers now, so I can walk with gum and <laughs>
0: play blackjack, but yeah, you played back Jack, you can't do simple math what's going on here yeah we're
1: we're, we're getting a little <laughs> well,
0: well, I wonder when this story will actually end that's kind of the thing is you know will it end this week or or next week or whatever, and as you mentioned though, so let's see you've got Buffett. Um, you got ten from Buffett, and you got uh, eight from them, so you got let's call it nineteen. Um, so if you if you multiply, you know, what nineteen times three, that's fifty-seven. So one third basically of the bid has come from Total, and now Buffett support. Mm-hmm. So that that's obviously bolstered it. So
1: and it gives them certainty because I, I know they were saying Anadarko's shareholders were concerned. That Oxy wouldn't be able to back up their offer for r- r- real cash, so they have 18.8 billion that they've basically shown um, that gives them the credibility to, or gives Anadarko some assurances that if they were to accept Oxy's, they won't be left, you know, standing around with nothing. Alright, so um, another article came out. Ryan, I know this is this one will be near and dear to your heart. Uh, Trump admin denies Kendra Morgan steel tariff waiver for Permian Basin Project. So um, I read that article. I thought about uh, some of the stuff you've been working on and uh, makes you just love the Trump admin even more, doesn't it?
0: You know, I got called a right-wing, right-wing propagandist on the Energy Week podcast the other day. Um, and I, I was like, they obviously haven't listened to me on some of my complaints on Trump or Maybe they don't understand what I'm saying, but yeah, you know, and and Trump yesterday, I'm trying to pull it up here. Josh was bragging about this and you know, he said something to the effect of, let's see if I got to hear, um how much money it add to the economy. I'm trying to see if I can if I can pull it up here. Here it is. For 10 months, China has been paying tariffs to the U.S. Uh, of 25%. Now, first off, that, it's not just China. As you know, I'm trying to import stuff from South Africa, and i got to pay the tariffs on that. So it's not just China. Um, on $50 billion of high-tech and 10% of $200 billion, $200 billion goods on other goods, these payments are partially responsible for our great economic results. The 10% will go up, up to 25% on Friday. Three hundred twenty-five billion of additional goods sent to China by the are untaxed, yada yada yada. Let's see, I don't think maybe that wasn't the tweet, but anyways. And I'm just sitting there going, you know, okay, we can talk about the tariffs page. I think we've been pretty clear that we're not big fans of them, but um, it's. It's not. It's 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 folks. It's it's like this project right here. You know, if you're sitting here, you're going to buy steel, and you're looking at going. Okay, well, Kinder, you know, Trump's going to tax us twenty five percent of what they're wanting to do is a lot of money. What I'm Mm -hmm. wanting to do twenty five percent is not nearly as much money as it is here. But for me, it's a lot of money, and I, I don't know. Ultimately, and I see Laura Ingram saying that Trump's so gutsy and this, that, and the other. If Trump accomplishes what he wants to accomplish in a shorter amount of time then okay you know you might look back and say well it was worth it but if he doesn't at some point I think there's going to be a level of frustration when you're not giving waivers to your company because this steel it said in this article at least was coming from Turkey so it's not Chinese steel unless the turkey meal is getting um, the Turkish meal is getting steel from China so I don't I don't I'm not a big fan of this and I don't know as the elections come up, they start to heat up. I think Trump's going to have to back off of this. Um, I don't know if the Democrats are going to put pressure on him or not here. If I was a Democrat, I would consider putting pressure on him on this tariff issue. Um, and just one one final thing about the economy. Um, Trump touts how great the economy is, and obviously unemployment is super low and things like that. But you know, any time the feds talk about raising the rates, the economy se- uh, has a severe reaction to that. So I would be careful playing with the fire that he's playing with because um, if the feds do raise the rate, I don't think that that will be um, the message that he's looking to send at that point.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a couple of, uh, a couple of pieces of information that could go in the M and a section, but I'll go and cover it since it's in this article. Um, There's two pipelines that Kendra Morgan's working on. One of them, 1.75 billion. That's the Gulf coast express pipeline. The other one is the Permian highway pipeline, it's going to be 2.1 billion dollars. It's going to move 2 billion cubic feet of natural gas from Waha Hub to the Katy Hub near Houston by October 2020. So, two big, big uh, pipelines to keep an eye on there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what what they do with the steel tariffs and if if it'll have any feasibility issues. I mean, they gotta. They seem like they gotta be built, but you know, they may change plans where they get the pipe, or uh, or they may just be forced to move ahead with it. And uh Ryan we got one last uh one last article we wanted to hit electric fracking. Uh they they're talking about trying this electric fracking in the Permian and um you know so what they what the, article, the gist of the article is they've been flaring a lot of uh, natural gas, wasting just tons and tons of natural gas and they're trying to figure out how they can utilize this natural gas instead of flaring it to then use it to frack, um Instead of using all this water and sand, you, learning how to, to harness the, the natural gas into some form of an electric um, orifice that they can use to, right. to frack. So it's a, it was an interesting article. Um, I yeah, really I,
0: just one, one quick comment on that, Josh. I, I'm curious to see how this shakes out, and it wouldn't surprise me if it doesn't work out in the first iteration. And then you see Article 6 months from now, Baker Hughes fails. But it's the type of things that we need to see happen in mm. the industry. If we're wasting all this natural gas, we can harness it right there on the well uh, and put it back into the rig to use it. Then it makes sense. So it's one of those things where the free market is going to try to figure out ways to cut costs, to be more effective. Um, so if you read six months, it doesn't work for now. Don't be discouraged. It's something that we have to try and we have to test out. And if it works, then it's great. So I think it's the type of thing that we want to try out.
1: Well, we have a special guest coming on the show today, Mr. Tom Zabel. Uh, He specializes in eminent domain litigation. We were going to have him on the show uh, a couple weeks ago, but he had to go um, to a conference. Uh, Mr. Zabel, you had some laws you were going to discuss um, at the time.
2: Yeah, I think I was at the legislature uh, testifying about the eminent domain reform last time uh, we had the podcast. I think Danny Boo covered it for me.
1: Yep, yep. So how how did that go?
2: So it's, it's an ongoing process. It's been, we've had many meetings in, uh, I've testified twice. Um, they're working on it right now. So basically what happened is uh, the Landowner Coalition group uh, is basically the Cattlemen's Association, Bankers, Parks and Wildlife, Texas Parks and Wildlife, and a lot of different landowner groups have formed a coalition and have uh, basically pushed some, what they call eminent domain reform in the legislature this session. Uh, the Senate passed a bill called Senate Bill 421, and then it's now in the House of Representatives, and we've been working with the House members to try to get an agreed-upon language uh, for the eminent domain, um, quote, reform bill. And I can go into kind of what's in it if you want, um, or do you want to know a little bit more about where it's at in the process?
0: Yeah, why don't you tell us more about what's in the bill and then, and then where it's at in the process?
2: Sure, so the landowners coalition have, have asserted that um, pipeline companies have been making what they call low ball offers. That in the initial offer letter, they're, they're making a, a, an offer that's too low. And basically under the condemnation procedures we have it currently, it was last um, amended in 2011 by what's called Senate Bill 18. But basically what's required right now for pipeline companies to condemn is you have to make an initial offer letter. Then you have to give 30 days to accept it. Then you can do a file offer letter. File offer letter has to include an appraisal of the property rights sought and an instrument, a legal instrument, an easement that you would be seeking. Uh, and then you have to give them 14 days before you file a condemnation suit. Then you would file a condemnation suit. Commissioners are appointed and you go down the path. The landowners are claiming that there's no guideline for initial offer letters. It's not tied to an appraisal, um, and they want it tied to something. Originally, the pipeline industry said, why not tie it to the um, uh, tax value, the abolition tax value? But the landowner groups didn't like that. And so now, basically, the initial offer letter has to be based on an appraisal, or you can get a broker uh, sales price opinion or a market uh, price opinion. So there's different options that are available or a market study that can be done either by an appraiser or by um, a licensed real estate broker. So, and they're also amending, because brokers have been somewhat limited on what they can do and can't do on valuing property for condemnation. They're amending the, I think the occupation code to give brokers the right to do what they're tying the initial offer letter to. So that's one of the three aspects of what the landowner groups are seeking you want me to go on to the other two or do you want to question me about the first one? Just keep going. All right. So the second second thing that the landowners want is they, they claim that they're, which is probably true, that there are some unsophisticated landowners that aren't used to dealing with pipelines and easements. Of course, there are a lot of very sophisticated parties, larger ranches, or people that have been crossed by multiple pipelines. As you know, there are multiple pipelines coming in from the Permian as we speak. Um, so a lot of folks uh, have had experience with it, but they want they want landowners to be advised of certain provisions and easements, um, like limiting the number of pipelines that go in, burial depth of the pipeline, uh, obligations to restore um, the land, fences, um, whether or not the amount offered includes loss of crops, things of that nature. So one of the things in the new legislation is basically setting forth statutory easement terms that have to be offered at least once to the landowner, so they are aware that they can ask for these type of things to be included in an easement. So that's part two. The third part is that the landowner groups want a meeting and they want a group meeting. And we were trying to, you know, having worked on, I've worked on the Dakota Access Line, I've worked on the Trans-Pecos Lines out in West Texas, Um, I worked on the Trans-Canada Keystone Line. So we're used to uh, if you don't properly set them up or you don't administer them properly, you can get a lot of acrimony. You can get a lot of the environmental groups that come in to protest. You can get attorneys soliciting landowners and trying to figure out the route so they can go out and sign everybody up. So we, we didn't have – the industry didn't have a, a, an issue in principle with meeting with landowners. In fact, we always do when they ask. But the group meeting originally it started as a concept of having it as a public meeting and inviting just anybody and everybody that wanted to come. And the way it's kind of been, I guess, reduced down now is it's a landowner meeting, that landowners can come, they can have members of their family come, they can have an attorney come, an appraiser come, um, tenants are invited. Um, but it's basically limited to those who actually have an interest along the pipeline. And what they did for all these long lines that are coming in from the Permian you have to have one group meeting for each 100 mile span. So basically, you know, 100 mile span, maybe two counties, three counties max, you would pick a central location in the 100 mile span, give them notice of a meeting and have a meeting where they can come ask questions, um, get disclosure of information, and then people that don't come have a right to get that same information upon written request. So that's kind of what's in the bill as we're talking right now, but it, keep in mind the Senate bill um, came out, it was not supported by industry it really didn't have a lot of input from the oil and gas industry. The House of Representatives, on the other hand, unlike the Senate, has worked very closely with industry and landowners to try to get language that works for both sides. And that's, that's what's working right now. In fact, as we speak, I think the Legislative Council is drafting the legislation after many, many meetings and input from both coalition sides. So I've been talking for a while. I'll let you ask some questions.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about the the meeting specifically because uh, one of the things on the show we talked about in the past is, you know, and right now, at least in the Permian, um, it's not really an issue, but when a new area blows up, if you go back to when the Haynesville was blowing up or the Barnett was blowing up, um, as a service company who's actually staking right away, we'd be told, hey, don't write the name on the stake. We're trying to keep secret what we're doing. And there's a lot of right away that's being bought. Now, these people don't have right to condemn, obviously, um, or exercise them in a domain, but there's a lot of right away agreements that were purchased. And- throughout the industry have been purchased under this kind of uh, secrecy. Hey, we don't want anybody to know what's going on. And I understand the logic for that, but looking back now has some of that um, desire to be first desire to get the pipe in before anyone else done and doing deals that are kind of not illegal or not shady, but they're just done in secrecy. Almost um, has that come back to bite the industry now where the landowners are like, you know what, you know, we've done deals with you guys before, but we didn't know what was going on. We weren't really sure. And now we kind of feel like we can't trust you guys.
2: So let me answer it two ways, because there's always confusion amongst even landowner groups on this. There's two different aspects of industry. There's the oil and gas production aspect, and then there's the actual, what I do, the pipeline transportation aspect. Oil and gas, when you have an oil and gas lease, as part of the oil and gas lease, you have a right to install pipelines on that lease without paying compensation typically, as long as you don't use more than is reasonably necessary. So a lot of oil and gas companies back when you did the Barnett Shale up in Dallas-Fort Worth area, I mean, they were going through neighborhoods and all over the place and there may have been a lot of secrecy back in the day. I don't know, but um, there were, I think a lot of the complaints that originated on this eminent domain actually came as a result of the Barnett Shale in a lot of the activities of oil and gas production companies versus pipeline transmission companies. And so there may have been a lot of, you know, labeling of easements where people weren't disclosing things or routes and things of that nature. When you get to our side of the equation, pipelines, you know, if, if we have the power of eminent domain, whether we're a common carrier or a gas utility, the very first time we mention that we have that power, we have to give a landowner the landowner bill of rights, which basically sets forth various rights and duties that they have. And of course we also on our projects, typically before the survey stage, we file a T4 permit application with the railroad commission, which shows the general route of our pipeline. So there's not a lot of secrecy with respect to the pipeline company's uh, route because before we typically even go out for survey access, we're filing an application with the railroad commission, which is publicly available. It shows the general route that we plan on going. Now, we have had a lot of pipelines coming in from the Permian where they've been fighting over the same easement space. Because, you know, most pipelines try to follow other pipelines to minimize the effect to the property. And so you've had a lot of people that have been laying their easements on top of each other, and they've had to go back to the landowner and move things around a little bit to accommodate, say, four pipelines in the same 200-foot area. So we have had some of that going on. There's no question.
0: Well, well I guess the only thing I would want to tease out there is that you do also have um – I'm not going to – I better not say the name of the client we're working for; they may get mad. But, um, but you do have it where um, you are having pipelines that are being laid that don't have; they're not being laid under lease rights as you described, and they don't have eminent domain domain powers either. So they're kind of they're having to be routed all these crazy ways, um, and so that's kind of the, for the landowner perspective, they may not understand these categories. But there's also kind of that middle category where. The, the companies is kind of behold, be held into the, the landowners um, because they can't lay it under lease rights for whatever reason. And they don't have the right to condemn. And it's more of those type of deals because uh, a landowner may not understand that uh, Bob Smith um, pipeline company is laying for marathon or whatever, and they can't condemn for whatever reason. That's not the same as Epic. And and so educating the public on, on those issues as well, that might be important.
2: Sure. So th- there, are, there are, you're right. There are a lot of pipelines that don't have the power of eminent domain and you know, it's all up to the landowner whether they reach terms to cross their property. So you may have a lot of strange routes. You know, you may probably want to have somewhat of a straight line to minimize distance and cost of pipeline. But when you have a private line, you may zigzag around a lot. Because if you have one landowner who doesn't want it, you're gonna have to go around that track and find another route. So it would be much harder on a private line for a landowner to determine exactly where the pipeline starts and ends. And it may not it may whatever is originally planned may not end up in the same place because you have to go around anybody that doesn't want to agree to terms, whether it's price or easement terms or whatever. But you're you're right about that. There is that category of lines.
0: So one of the things we had the debate on, Josh and I discussed was um, kind of you know the argument as we've understood it, is is that. Um, you know we don't want government involved in the business, but one of the pushbacks we said was well, when we bring the if this bill passes and things go forth, that government is actually being involved because you have to take it to trial or, or whatever the, the the provisions are to get this this issue ratified. Um, and it seems like we were talking about a story earlier about the the protesting law. You may be familiar with what's going on there. Um, it seems like when government issues a law, they tend to expand their powers, not contract them. What would you say for someone who's who's like us, who we realize there's a need for this, but we're also worried that this might open up the door to um, taking of, you know, of expansion of eminent domain rights down the road?
2: Yeah, so I can say this about the current legislation. This is the one, it's it's basically all one sided that there's nothing in the bill that that the pipeline industry particularly wants. Um, They've been basically, the landowners came up with what they want and we've been trying to make it work so that it doesn't, slow down the process or shut down the, the, the condemnation process, but, I mean, just to make sure there's no mistake, this is not a pipeline industry bill. It's all the landowner bill that has been modified, hopefully, in a way that will work and not slow down, you know, infras- public infrastructure and pipelines, and, you know, as far as kind of going back to your other um, comment, you know, the legislature decided, Back, actually, the very first pipeline eminent em, domain law came in into effect in the 1890s. Uh, so we've been right around the time the railroads, and the railroads had started getting it all going back in the in the 1800s. And then the Common Carrier Act was passed in 1917, and then the Gas Utility Act was passed in 1920. So the legislature determined in back in those early days that oil and gas was of such importance in Texas that they wanted to encourage that, and they they basically delegated the right um, for eminent domain to common carriers and gas utilities, you know, which made Texas the largest producing state in the country. And we've stayed that way because the courts and the legislature have encouraged that while at the same time trying to strike a balance with landowners to make sure that they're not, you know, mistreated, and then make sure they get fair compensation. So it's, it's been the way of Texas since the late, um, 1800s to encourage oil and gas. And, you know, looks, look where it's put our state. We're the second largest economy, only right. outdone by California.
0: Um, so one, one quick flop on that is, just, just for my vantage point more than anything, anything else in the listeners, let's say the bill, you said the the Senate bill didn't look too promising, but the House bill does. Walk us through what's going to happen not in terms of the landowner and the negotiation side, but the legal side. So if the bill passes, do you think the governor will will sign it? Will it be contested? Will it go to the Supreme Court? Potentially, obviously, the Supreme Court may not take it, but what would be the next two to three years as we watch this bill play out if it does pass?
2: Well, we're hoping, and the reason that the pipeline industry has been so involved, we're trying to get a bill that works, that, that gives the landowners what they want, but also doesn't slow down the infrastructure, the the process that we have. So we're hopeful at the end of the day that we're going to reach a consensus language and it's going to be a very smooth transition. And we're not going to have a lot of litigation over the new legislation. We're simply going to um, give them a little bit more of a basis for their initial offer. We're going to give them easement terms, advise them of what they can negotiate and we're going to have the meetings and hopefully, all that runs really smoothly. The legislation, hopefully, is written right at the end of the day, where they get what they want, but it doesn't slow down the process and it doesn't lead to a lot of litigation. That's what we're hopeful of. But you never know until it's done. You know, you got to wait till you see the final language. And writing legislation is tough. You got to try to think of every angle, and you know, even with a bunch of smart people, you don't think of everything.
1: I was, uh, I was talking with a client, uh, one of our clients, that was stressed out about uh that those public meetings i think he was talking about the size of the pipelines that were they were going to require a public meeting um is there going to be any change from the senate bill to the to the house bill or the house bill to the senate bill um with regard to those meetings is there a certain size of the pipelines that once it hits a certain size it has to be a public meeting held um so what's the, the meeting thing had him a little worried because he thought it 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 would slow things down a lot because there's a lot of uh, pipelines that he's working on this not re- not really that big but there would still be a required public meeting and the- right
2: so what we try to do on that's good question um and i think the senate bill i haven't looked at it real recent but i think it's the same basically the only thing that a, the only pipelines that the new legislation will apply to will be a pipeline that crosses 25 or more tracks owned by unaffiliated people so We wanted to try to stay away from all the small gathering lines because we think even with the language as written, we're going to have 200 to 400 meetings a year across the state for all pipelines. That's a lot. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. talking about maybe a meeting a day and in the Permian half of them are going to be in the Permian you might have 200 meetings in a year in the Permian basin alone. And if we were not to exclude gathering lines, that might double or triple. And in a lot of, you know, on such a short line, it doesn't need that level of, of scrutiny. I mean, if people want to meet with pipeline companies, they're always happy to send someone to, to meet with them on individual issues. So that I think the House bill and the Senate bill are pretty similar. They're about they, they only apply it to 25 or more tracks if the pipeline crosses, 25 or more tracks owned by separate ownership. So that was kind of the catch all to make sure it didn't apply to every small piece of pipe.
0: Um, w- one final question here. Uh, two final questions, I guess. One question and then let you kind of uh, expand on it. Um, so if we had a pipeline that that originates, like you mentioned, some of those big, large lines has been the news. They originate up north. They come through Texas. Will this bill, obviously there could be FERC regulating stuff, but will this bill have something for them, or would we say, okay, there's some federal laws that are kind of governing those pipelines? Um, so that's the first question. And the second question is, anything we haven't hit on today that you want the, the listeners who are industry folks and some landowners to know about?
2: Yeah, so um, on the first issue, on the FERC issue, there's an exclusion in the statute right now for interstate gas lines, because those are comprehensively regulated by FERC. Um, pipelines, liquid pipelines that are interstate are still under state eminent domain. So they would be subject to the new law, but not the interstate FERC gas line. So they've got to carve out. Um, and then as far as, uh, so, so that would be the FERC side of things. I think where we're at right now is I think in the next week, we're going to probably hear from the house and get to the end of the trail to see whether we're going to reach consensus language or we're not. Last session, we worked really hard two years ago. We worked really hard as the pipeline industry and in our coalition, which is much larger than just pipelines. It's power lines, pipelines. It's, 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 you'd have to look at the, the CCI coalition. It's, it's a lot. It's counties. It's, it's municipalities. It's a lot. We worked really hard last session to get a consensus bill. We thought we had one at the last minute. The landowners withdrew their support after we'd worked on it for most of the session and it just died. So I don't know what will happen this session. Um, We've been working as hard this session as we did last session, trying to get consensus language. So we may get there. And if we don't, then maybe it just dies in the house like it did last year. Uh, There's also, you did mention, there's a couple others. There's the, the bill about protesters and trespassing and things that's supposed to strengthen that up so that critical infrastructure, um, you know, we had some actual people that turned valves on some of the pipelines, uh, turned the Mm -hmm. closed-in pipelines, major transmission lines, which is a very big safety hazard. So we want to keep people safe, we want to keep people out of those type of facilities and if we need to bolster um, the statutes to make sure that happens, I think that's an important bill. I'm trying to think. There's also one that I don't know. I've got to check the status of it where they're trying to make all right-of-way agents be licensed, uh, much like real estate brokers or, um, or real estate appraisers. I I need to check to see where that is. It originally was part of the Senate bill, and then I saw there was a separate bill that had been bouncing around. I don't know whether that's still going or not going. But that would, of course, be major for all right-of-way agents because it would require you know studies and uh, probably a test for licensing and then continuing education like lawyers and i guess uh appraisers have to go through every year
0: yeah it sounds like a sounds like a terrible bill to me but um the the, the government's just always going to get up in your business real quick you mentioned the the trespassing bill josh and i were talking about this um that is a concern for us obviously we don't want protesters on the right of way but why aren't the current trespassing laws enough. And so let me, let me break this two ways. Here's how we broke it up. If you're in a facility, so you hop the fence and get out of facility, it's pretty clear that's trespassing. But the easement one is of concern because there are plenty of easements where you cannot tell where the easement starts and where it stops. And so theoretically, again, we are not pipeline protesters. We don't put people open in valves, but theoretically, uh, Josh should give a protester um, permission to come on his property and protest. And the, um, the protester might not be able to tell where the easement starts and stops. I mean, as you know, as a lawyer, you'd have to have a surveyor out there to actually measure the easement and it might not be clear. You could get to some real legal stuff. So why aren't the current trespassing laws enough to um, to, 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 to be the what we have to put these people in jail or to fine them or whatever?
2: Yeah, the way I look at it, and I haven't studied as much detail as I probably should, but I think the industry is more concerned about enclosed areas, you know, okay. where we actually have critical okay. infrastructure. Okay. I'm with you. I mean, it's hard to, we're more worried about people digging and excavating along the easement than we are just standing out there and protesting. Right. Um, we don't, you know, where we get into concerns is when we're in construction and people are getting on the right of way where it's pretty obvious where we are Right. being around heavy equipment or chaining themselves to heavy equipment Mm -hmm. or, you know, getting in trees that are along the easement that we need to cut down. I mean, we're trying to stay away from safety hazards that are pretty obvious to, I think a normal person and just trying to bolster those to make sure that we, have safe pipelines, and the public is safe as well.
0: Yeah. no facilities where there's... there's a, they showed a picture on the article where there's a trench, there's a pipe in it, the guy said on... A lot of no-brainer stuff there, but it is... The language would be a little concerning if it was uh, vague, because you could see some scenarios where people um, might actually have the right to be out there, and they can get into some problems. But, no, it's good to know it's more about the facilities than it is the easement stuff. Okay, Tom, um, first off, let's plug your website, which is zabelfreeman.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. As, as we mentioned, we had on... Um, uh, Danny Vu, a few months ago or months ago, whenever it was, and you were testifying. Um, I'm not sure why Congress is more important in this podcast, Josh. It feels like, I mean, <laughs> it feels like this is where where he should have been, but we'll let it slide this time. Um ZableFreeman.com. And what was funny, I was telling you, Tom, is after we got off here, we won't mention the client's name, but it turns out that our company and your law firm actually works for a mutual client. We had no idea, and so that was kind of a, a funny thing that, that that came out of this episode. Um what else do you want folks to, if they want to check out your law firm or you personally, or if you have any speaking events or anything that you guys want to plug or promote, uh, what, what, what would you like to say about the firm or you personally?
2: Sure. So, I mean, I think mainly um, everything is on our website. I think our, we've got a pretty robust website that talks about our experience and what we do. I mean, typically for most of the listeners, and we do most of the work on the pipeline side, the only landowner work I typically do in eminent domain is against dot. Um, uh, so we do get on the other side of that, um, as far as eminent domain. So we would represent landowners in textile cases, but we don't specialize in that near as much as we do the pipeline uh, litigation. And of course, the other side that most people don't really realize about our firm, since we're doing so much pipeline work now, is that my I grew up doing oil and gas litigation, so um, I have done more work for e&p companies in the litigation arena than i have pipeline companies although i'll tell you the last 10 years have been the busiest pipeline period in texas and so our resources are devoted a lot to that but we still have a pretty robust practice in oil and gas litigation
0: okay well tom we're glad we got you on here finally um And as things develop, maybe get you or Danny on here in a few months to kind of walk us through what's going on. Appreciate your time and the update. Again, ZabelFreeman.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, They do good work, and we know that because we actually found out that we're working together on a project. So, uh, Tom, thank you for your time today.
1: Well, thanks again for Mr. Zabel joining us on the show today. It was great having him him on, just a wealth of information, a lot of clarification. So uh, big thanks to him for coming on the show today uh ryan anything we want to we want to kind of recap or cover before we uh we end the show
0: yeah it was good to hear i know he said he has to double check the law but it's good to hear that that law is more about enclosed facilities and things like that not the easement issue that we were kind of worried about where it's not necessarily clear um and so that would make a lot more sense hey if you're hot you know the the examples he gave made me feel better about that bill um but again we're got to see the final as he mentioned Until the final language comes out, and then, you know, until the courts start to rule on these cases, you don't really know. So we want to see where the language ends up on that. Um, But um, it is good to know that they're not trying to, at least as of right now, make a blank sweeping statement where, you know, if you're on the easement, you Mm -hmm. could be considered this. Um, Because, you know, the easements run to the facility, so you could be outside the fence on the easement, not necessarily be aware of it uh, because you're on a private landowner. And I hate to keep saying it, Josh, it's not like we're pro protesters but we don't we also want to make sure that we're not just some kind of crazy law that just throws people in cages for uh for no good reason yeah and I, I think uh, you know, he
1: mentioned you know they're trying to cut down trees to get ready to lay a pipeline yeah people no climb I mean, up in yeah, the so, yeah, that makes sense it, it, I, yeah
0: because in that in the case he mentioned you know if the trees being cut down you'd have you know survey stakes um, that would be outside of it it'd be marked it would be clear yeah. that that tree's in the right-of-way um, you know things like that um, and so again, though, the, I, I, and he didn't really answer this and we, you know, we, he, to be fair, he wasn't coming on the show to talk about this. So I want to be fair to him. Uh, I would be curious why this, the current trespassing law, you know, I, I guess, I guess they're saying they want to beef it up to make it have a little bit more, um, impact. But, um, the only pushback I'd say is, is, you know, will the protesters fully know, I mean, there's things that I mean you could do today that we wouldn't really know the potential legal ramification of. Um, so, I guess eventually they find out, but anyways, no, no big deal. I, I was glad to hear it's more cut and dry stuff than just kind of, Hey, uh, being out there on the easement could get you in jail for 20 years.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Very. All right.
1: Well, uh, Ryan, we had a review, uh, that you mentioned earlier. I don't have access to it. I think it was on
0: Spreaker. Yeah. This is on Spreaker by Lane Morris, Josh. Um, you know, as the speakers where the show is hosted, so you can leave reviews there as well. And it says, um, taxes raise gas prices, so DIMs are not favorable to oil and gas. Other reasons, over regulation, minimal competition, or full government control. And Lane, I would definitely agree with you. I think we've made our stance pretty clear on, you know, government control and issues like that. Those are definitely things to be concerned with. Um, so I I think there is something there to consider as well. So that's obviously in remark to the the Beto Comments about Beto not taking oil and gas money or comments about that. Um You know, it's funny, Josh. I saw um, a conversation this weekend on LinkedIn about that very same topic. Someone, I guess someone published an article um talking about that. And, uh you know, and there was, this person has, there was like 30 comments and 12 likes. And I haven't read them all, but the last time... um the last time I looked at it, it looks like most people are on the side of, yeah, he's not going to, yeah, not not going to be voting for him if he feels that way about the industry. And just like we said back then, it's just a stupid position to take if you're if you're in Texas, especially. Like if you're in maybe California or something like that, um, maybe I could see you taking that because you know you're gonna you know, you know whatever. But your home state, you know. Beto would need Texas to win the presidential election, and to to spurn, um, to spurn his own base would be interesting. But uh, I did see a report this morning that he's uh, Beto is struggling in the polls. So um, maybe, maybe. Well, I say maybe, Josh. We know the reality is. Folks heard him on the podcast. You know, they heard they heard it on the podcast that he was a uh, bashing on oil and gas, and now he's going to be out at the election. So I mean, hate hate to hate, it, a couple weeks hate to do it to you, brother. But you know, I mean, you know, it's. It is what it is. So that's a warning to all politicians. You know, come after us, man. We'll just we'll just sink your ship right here on the show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> who's who's, who's next? next, baby? Trump, who's you better next? watch we're out. In, them terrorists, big is. boy. We're coming for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, so Ryan, I think I think that I think that finishes. Yeah, up that's day, pretty man. much
0: it. Um, next week we'll be recording Josh, but then I'm heading up to the Doug Rockies Conference up in Denver. So if you're up in Denver. Got a few meetings lined up, but I might have some time. So I'll be up there uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, come back Thursday. So um, if you're going to at the conference, let me know. I'd love to meet up with you. And then, of course, the fishing trip brought to you by our sponsor, which is Baffin Bay Rod and Gun. You can find out more about BaffinBayRodandGun.com by going to the website. Um, Josh, we've loved going there. I've had a blast. Uh, two more trips left before this, this deal wraps up. So May 24th and 25th, and then we've got one in June 28th and 29th. So, if you haven't signed up, you need to sign up today. We'll be announcing the winner probably next Monday, I'd imagine, or this week. I had to look at my schedule to see what we got going on. But we um, be announcing the winners to that. And um, I guess that's it, Josh. Anything else? I think that's it, man. Okay, well, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, keep climbing.